0: This is one thing that's interesting about agency people is we will always find a new way to capture, use t- to leverage technology to find our ideal clients. So there are technologies out there where we can track people that are coming to the website now and get their contact info. So we're testing that out for ourselves right now. And in terms of the podcast industry, I think it's going to shrink. I think that like a lot of things, it was really, really was like a fad. So a lot of people jumped in, but the time it takes to produce the episodes and eventually you're just like, I'm not making any money off this thing. So I think the number of podcasts will shrink, which is not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Podcast Junkies, episode 293. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Newcomers to the show, rolling out the welcome mat for you. If you are finding the show for the very first time, thank you for listening and giving me a shot. Uh, We say us, me. (laughs) It's just me hosting the show, but I have a wonderful team supporting me. So it is a team effort this is the one where we search out interesting voices in podcasting, get them to kick back their heels and talk about their shows and whatever else is on their mind. missed last episode, we had a conversation with Lindsay Jepkema. She is the CEO and the co-founder of Casted. It's the first amplified marketing platform and the only audio and video podcast solution designed specifically for enterprise marketers. We talked about business practices in the midst of a pandemic, how to create compelling content and what it means to provide value, enhance the podcasting industry, for specifically for B2B marketers. She gave a shout-out to some of the mentors who helped shape her career and uh, what she looked for in prospective clients. And It was really eye-opening. I learned a lot as a B2B marketer myself and appreciate Lindsay's time and experience. This week, I speak to Chris Martinez. He's the founder of Dude Agency and the host of the Operation Agency Freedom podcast. He joins me to discuss the work his agency does in web development and design and funnel building and his affinity for, of all things, Mexican wrestling. Today we talk about his entrepreneurial journey, finding the hidden gems in remote work settings, and the importance of embracing connection and telling your whole story. Full show notes, summary, timestamps, key takeaways, resources mentioned, all of it is available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 293. Don't forget if you are enjoying this podcast, this episode, past episodes, and you just haven't had a chance to, you can pause it right now, this episode right now, and leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. Nothing puts a bigger smile on my face than reading these out on future episodes. I'm not sure if you can pick up on a different quality when it comes to the mic I'm using for this intro. I'm actually using the built-in mic from my headphone. These are $15 Sony collapsible headphones that I've been using as my go to. I've been fans of all sorts of fancy full studio headphones, but for traveling, Uh, I don't think there's anything that beats the convenience of the ones I'm using now. I'll drop those in the show notes if it'd be helpful for anyone. But I think it's a function of the show must go on. And this weekend I'm up north at a cabin in uh, Round Lake, which is in Brainerd, Minnesota. My partner's parents have a house here and uh, we came up for a couple of days just to get some rest and relaxation. So it's been a pretty crazy couple of weeks Previous to this, I was at Orlando Podfest. Some of you may have noticed some of our postings on social with me and my podcast peeps. I had the pleasure of speaking on day three on Sunday about how I was able to get sponsorship for my second show, the Vertical Farming Podcast. If for some reason I just haven't had the chance to mention it <laughs> or you haven't seen me cross posting on socials, I've been doing that since 2022, 50 plus episodes, interviews with some of the most fascinating CEOs and founders of the vertical farming industry. So it's been a great second podcast hosting project. Probably not second. If I start to think about <laughs> all the ones I'm hosting, all the ones I've started and stopped, but these are the two main ones, this show and the vertical farming podcast. So you can check that out at verticalfarmingpodcast.com, or just Google those three words. It's the first show that shows up, and there's a whole story behind that as well. So um, if you know anyone in that industry, point them that way. Always will give a shout out for newpodcastapps.com. Digging deep into the benefits of having direct compensation for your podcast hosts. I was happy to see Dave Jackson mention it and talk about it in his session at PodFest, and I sat through that as well. Those are always sparsely populated those sessions, but it's fun to see the people who are interested in the cutting edge of crypto, uh, NFTs, podcasting. There was a couple of good sessions on that as well. And I I know it's super, super, super early days. And a lot of this feels like bleeding edge technology, but uh, it's probably better to get on it early and learn and go through some of the, the bumps along the way. I think there's still a lot of value in that. So that was helpful for me. Okay, just a few words from the folks that support this show, followed by an uninterrupted interview with Chris Martinez. Speaking of being grateful, I'm very happy for our relationship, our continued relationship with our sponsor, Focus Right. Shout out to Dan Hewley, got to spend some time with him as well at their beautiful booth at Podfest. And We can now talk about specifically what's coming up with their new Vocaster line. I've been very, very honored to have the privilege of getting a sneak peek at the gear. Let me tell you guys and gals, it is absolutely sexy, next-level stuff. I'll go through a couple of the benefits and the features of the Vocaster, but I cannot wait to get my hands on one in person I've seen it a couple of times out in a while, thanks to Dan. It's got auto gain, so you can easily set up your levels with the click of a button. And more than enough gain on tap, 70 dB, no booster needed. It's got an enhanced feature, four podcaster approved voice presets that bring out the best in any voice. Their mute option lets you silence the mic with the touch of a button. You can connect your phone now. This is super cool. You can record phone calls, high quality music, or any audio from your device seamlessly. You can now plug in a camera and record directly to its memory card. Their loopback feature now allows you to stream calls or any other audio you can think of from your computer with two sets of stereo loopbacks. And now even better, includes some of the best world-class software for podcasters. Hindenburg Lite, listeners will know that I'm a super fan of the whole Hindenburg line. Three months of Squadcast Pro, this is amazing. I am a founding advisor to the team, been working with them since 2016, and the fact that These two powerhouses were able to work together to bring you Squadcast Pro. You'll get pro and video to ensure your recordings are now world-class. You get six months of Acast Influencer to publish, and that trio of services is exactly what you need to make sure that you're launching your podcast like a pro. You can learn more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash vocaster. That's V-O-C-A-S-T-E-R. So, Chris Martinez, founder of Dude Agency and host of Operation Agency Freedom. Thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having me on.
1: So, time on your site without noticing your fondness for Mexican wrestling. So, I'm going to start there. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you were ever introduced to it or first match you ever saw?
0: Mexican wrestling specifically? Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm sure I watched it when I was a kid, but I didn't actually watch it live until I moved full time to Mexico, which was in 2018. Okay. So my wife, current wife now, she was my girlfriend back then. We just decided to go to the arena where they have it. Yeah. And it was actually walking distance from where we used to live. So we're like, let's go check it out. It was so much fun. Prior to me even going to the match, I had created that character for Dude. So I made my own Mexican wrestling Lucha Libre costume. Nice. (laughs) And so let me tell you the story really quickly of how that came about, right? So, like, I had an agency from 2012 to 2017. And then in 2017, I came up with the idea for Dude. Yeah. And so I still had my agency and we still had over 200 and something clients. And so I was like, I have this crazy idea. And we started running Facebook ads to try and prove the concept because I'd learned through failing many, many times that it might be a great idea, but until somebody's willing to give us money, it doesn't mean anything. So we started running ads and I think the original ads were like unlimited design and development for $500, like crazy offer. Right. And literally like we've changed so many things, but I just needed to prove that this idea was feasible from a business perspective. And we started getting clients. And so those ads would run. And then this is back when retargeting was a little bit more effective. Yeah. My retargeting ads would be me in some sort of crazy outfit. So I did some with a Batman mask and I did some with this Mexican wrestling mask that I had had for almost, that was probably like nine years that I'd had this wrestling mask. Did you make it? No, no. I bought it actually on a trip to Mexico. So me and my buddy were driving back and we stopped and we bought these Mexican wrestling masks and the original mask was black. Okay. So it was the same design with the horns and everything, but everything was black and white. So the original ads were me in that mask in the black and white mask and our retargeting ad click through rate was insane. It was like 35%. So then I just kept wearing the mask. And I did actually, you probably don't know this. I had an original podcast that never got launched interviewing minority business owners. Okay. Not even agency people. In that podcast, I would wear the mask and no shirt. (laughs) That podcast never got launched, but I had some. Are those masks hot? Unbelievably hot. Are they leather? No, no, no. It's polyester, plastic, you know, like not breathable fabrics by any stretch of the imagination. And these are knockoffs too. I think I bought it for like $10. So then that evolved into us getting a booth at Trafficking Conversion Summit in 2018. It was a big investment for us at the time. I might've been there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this was Trafficking Conversion had built a pretty good big name for itself. So I think that year they had four or 5,000 attendees and so we got this booth. We ended up investing about $10,000 in the booth, which is still a lot of money. But at the time we were doing, dude was like doing like maybe 12,000 in revenue. Yeah. So it was a big investment. And I decided, because I'd been to traffic and conversion as an attendee many, many, many times. Sure, yeah. And I kind of knew how everybody did their booths. And I said, we're going to go all in on Mexico because our staff are typically in Mexico. And I'm going to do something crazy to get attention. So I created that costume where I was wearing the spandex shirt originally i wasn't gonna wear a shirt and then the gal (laughs) who sold me the booth is like you're gonna wear a shirt right yeah and i was like i wasn't planning on it she's like you need to wear a shirt I was like, okay, fine. (laughs) So then I was like, well, there goes me dieting for six weeks to try and actually have some abs. So I had the spandex white shirt. I had the cape that I bought off Amazon. I changed the color of the mask to blue. I hired a seamstress here in Mexico to change the color of the plastic. I bought blue boots. I had white tights and then a blue Speedo. And that's where it came from. That was the first time that we did it. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to do a name, the dude beast, Yeah. So if you ever want motivation to get into really good shape, sign up and wear spandex in front of 5,000 people at a conference. That'll give you all the motivation that you need.
1: So naturally the costume and the booth gets you the attention, but then you have to convert, right? (laughs) You have to actually provide a valuable service.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So then we started doing more videos, video content, wearing the costume. And I had a full house uh, or an in-house video team at the time. And so we were recording episodes all the time. So I was having to wear that outfit a lot. And then when COVID hit, we didn't need the in-house team anymore. And they ended up moving on to other roles. But now that we're back in-house, I'm probably going to have to support the costume again. I like wearing it. I have no problem doing it. And actually, I need to dry clean the mask itself because we did one video where one of the scenes we were doing a champagne spray everywhere. I got to find them. I think it's, that video is only on Wistia. I got it on YouTube. So if you watch the clip, I was spraying everywhere. And somehow, one of the girls that was to my left, who was a former employee, she got drenched, like completely <laughs> drenched. Like if there's... of the bottle of champagne went right in her face and then like the other 10% went all on my face and then the other everybody else but now the mask it stinks like it needs to be cleaned so badly (laughs) but like when you're doing video like you can't smell so like I just tough it out wear the mask even though it stinks but I need to clean that thing
1: and so uh, where's home for you now
0: Tijuana Mexico Tijuana yeah I've been living here for about four years it'll be four years next month
1: and is that where you grew up
0: No, no. I grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. So I grew up in a suburb of LA called Torrance and then went to college in Santa Barbara at UC Santa Barbara. Went back to LA after college for 10 years, then went to San Diego and then started the office here in Mexico in 2015. And then from 2015 to 2018, I was living in South San Diego, basically going back and forth across the border every single day.
1: What'd you study in college?
0: Sociology. I studied sociology. Yeah. So I went to school. I think I actually applied and got in for what would be the equivalent of pre-law. It was called law and society. And I never took a single law and society class. I'm so glad because I thought at the time I wanted to be a lawyer and so glad that I'm not an attorney. Like I'm not, no offense to any attorneys that are listening, but I'm not a huge fan of attorneys. You watch Better Call Saul? I watched a few episodes. (laughs) That guy's just such a schmuck, man. Like it's like too much for me. Yeah, he's a good actor. It's, he does that character. The evolution of when he becomes kind of like a badass, that's an interesting story. But I started watching it when he was getting started, and I was just like, oh my god, this guy's so
1: the, the Yeah, the first, the, it's a little rough to start We just finished up the last season that's available. and It's getting really good.
0: Like, Is it really? Awesome.
1: Yeah, it's Breaking Bad vibes. Because it's the same director,
0: Vince. Yeah. So I went into school for law and society, kind of bounced around University of California, Santa Barbara, at least College of Letters and Science. They have a lot of requirements before you can get into your upper division classes. So you have to take a bunch of different courses to get a very well-rounded education, which I really appreciated. So I took logic or philosophy. I took a lot of philosophy classes. I took art history classes. I took two dance appreciation classes, which were really interesting. I got an A plus in one of them. Math. What's the
1: actual dancing involved?
0: Not for me. If you were in the honors (laughs) course, you had to do a dance on the stage in front of everybody. It was just like the history of dance. Okay, cool. And I'm a huge fan of Broadway musicals. So it's really interesting to see, to like be able to incorporate, utilize the knowledge of the game from those courses. Now, when I go to New York and go watch the shows or go watch shows anymore. What else did I take? Calculus. You had to take calculus. You had to take physics. And then eventually I settled on sociology. It was a course that I absolutely loved. I loved everything that it taught. And I did take a year off from school to just work. And I was the copy boy at a environmental consulting firm. Okay. I did. I ran the copy room for about a year and then decided, oh, I want to go back to school, get my degree and, and do something that I actually like. When did the entrepreneurial bug
1: set in? Was that something that you always had, uh, this idea to be in business for yourself?
0: Kind of, sort of. So, like, I think it's definitely shaped by your family and your environment when you're growing up. So, like, if your parents are entrepreneurs, you get to see what it's actually like to be a business owner and managing team members. My uncle was an entrepreneur. He was the most successful financially of all of my dad's side of the family, which was eight people. So he invented some sort of technology that was bought by SoCal Edison in the 60s that allowed them to monitor the electric meters remotely. So you didn't have to have people walking around to check the meters every month. And he sold that to Edison for millions of dollars in the 60s. And then that was like the peak... That's a lot of money back then. Yeah. I don't think he had any, I mean, he lived on that forever. So I don't think he had any other huge successes like that. That was just like the one thing. So I would always, we'd go to uncle Lou's house. Cause he had this ranch and like, he had the indoor pool and he had this amazing kind of like estate that he had built for himself. And so that was like, oh yeah, he, he had a private plane too. One time I had a private oh, yeah. planes, plane. <laughs> it was just a little Cessna, but still amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so that was kind of like, oh wow. Like he owns a business. Uncle Lou's really, really doing some cool things. My dad was an engineer by trade and he had a little engineering consulting company when I was in high school. So I kind of got to see that because I would, you know, go to his office and study there or something like that. But he wasn't, in my opinion, and I think he would agree with me on this if he were alive, he wasn't really an entrepreneur. And he ended up going back, he closed his consulting company and went back to working for Aerospace Corporation before he died. And so I didn't have that. I have a good friend, family friend of mine still to this day, Brian, who he is a true entrepreneur. I built a multi million dollar business and sold it. And now still has you know, probably over a hundred million dollars in real estate now. So he's a very successful guy. So he's my mentor, one of my mentors to this day. But I didn't really have that entrepreneurial example that I think a lot of people have. I did have the desire though. So I would do little things for myself. Like in college, I was flat broke and I started a note-taking service in college. This is before that was even. So I sat in a course, sociology one, there was about a thousand students in the class and I started taking notes and I was an upper division sociology major in my final quarter. So I would take notes and then I would sell the notes to people. So I would charge them. I, don't know, I think it was like a hundred bucks. Yeah. And I ended up making a few thousand bucks off of that. It was amazing money. So that was kind of like a taste of entrepreneurship. After my dad died, I started a soccer magazine. That was my first real business. And I failed miserably. I lost everything, everything. I was so close to being on the streets.
1: So the quick 60-second what not to do when starting a magazine
0: don't try and do everything yourself have enough money started saved up this is the biggest thing is don't dive into a technology that's dying nobody wanted print magazines anymore and i was like i'm gonna make it work no it was a horrible horrible mistake so lost a lot of money more money than i had i was in debt after that sued and everything. pay off a bunch of debt but yeah that was my first true business that i started and then launched my agency in 2012 and so yeah i mean it actually took a while for me to embrace the idea of calling myself an entrepreneur i kind of remember being afraid of telling people that for some reason that role there is an intimidation
1: yeah it's almost like back then because I mean I was born in El Salvador so my like, you know naturally your parents they want to see you succeed go to college have the nine-to-five job and there is that stigma especially when you tell people like oh I'm, I'm doing my own thing oh that's nice it's like a hobby or something like that oh yeah
0: or they think oh my god he's gonna try and sell me some <laughs> stupid shit
1: yeah or some They're
0: like no I don't want you to join my Herbalife scam <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so what made you pick agency as the business in 2012?
0: Yeah. So 2009, 2010, magazine got under. I'm in debt and I started working for a charter bus company because my first job right out of college was sales. I have extensive sales background. And so I'm picking myself back up. I got a job starting to pay off my debts and I had an idea and I wanted to build a website and I didn't know how to do it. Never been into technology ever. And so I asked a friend of mine who somehow I'd seen that he had built a website for his girlfriend at the time. And at the bottom, it had the powered by WordPress. Remember in the sidebar, it had the search so you could see what it was built on.
1: Usually the old sites would have like the login link as well on those WordPress.
0: Yeah. And then sometimes it would have like the word cloud at the bottom with the different links to the popular categories and stuff. So. I asked him, I was like, Amir, like, how can you build this website for me? And he's like, what's, I remember asking him, what's WordPress? And he's like, dude, you can build your website on it. Just figure it out. And I was so mad. I was like, dude, this fucking guy, he doesn't want to help me. Like I suck at this stuff. (laughs) But it was the best advice that I'd gotten. So I went out and I built my first WordPress website, not knowing anything over the course of a weekend. And I remember hosting it on HostGator. And so I was on like over the weekend, I was just chatting with their support all weekend long, calling in, how do I do this? And I launched the website. From Friday to Sunday, all I did was build this website and I did it on my own. And then from there, I started learning how to build more websites for little projects. And then I learned how to build more drive traffic. And I actually hired Russell Brunson, had a coaching program back then called Dotcom Secrets. Oh, yeah, that's right. And yeah, so and he had actually partnered with Glazer Kennedy Insider Circle. And so that was kind of like a coaching program that he leveraged his relationship with Dan Kennedy to launch this digital marketing coaching program. And at the time they were teaching you how to buy like remnant banner traffic on big sites for like super, super cheap black hat SEOs. Like a lot of stuff obviously doesn't work anymore, but that was how I learned about traffic. And then 2012, I ended up moving away from the bus company, which that is a whole nother story because the guy who started the bus company funded it with the largest Ponzi scheme in Washington state history. Oh my God. (laughs) Nobody ever questioned him, ever. I was working for the company when the FBI came in and shut him down.
1: Oh man. That's never a good feeling when the FBI walks into the office.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that job went away. So then I started working for Reach Local, which did PPC management. They didn't do websites. So I was meeting all these small businesses. They had horrible websites. And then boom, I can start a website agency. And that's how it got started.
1: What were some of those early lessons, mistakes that you made? And then you just didn't know about starting an agency.
0: Well, I mean, things that I didn't know about. I'll start there: is running the numbers, basically being able to analyze the numbers, knowing what's a healthy gross margin, knowing what net income is, how to manage churn rate, just like essentially knowing how to look at the business from a CEO perspective. We learned so many things over the over the course of seven years that or eight years that I had the agency. We started out charging nothing, like nothing, like thirty nine dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> wow! But we just started getting customers and I was yeah. moonlighting for the first year. So I had this other income stream I just charging too little leadership. Oh my God, horrible. I'm not a good leader by, I'm not one of these born leaders. I don't think I have the drive. I have the vision, but actually managing people always struggled with. So learning how to effectively manage and lead people, I've learned so much in that area. And I think it's really relevant today for agency owners specifically, because I think that we're going, right. basically say that we're going through an evolution in the agency space and leadership is way more important. You have to learn how to lead a team. Otherwise you won't survive this latest evolution. So I think those are probably the big ones. The numbers, leadership, charging too little, those things. Can you
1: think of a relationship or a mentorship or someone who's provided good leadership for you?
0: Oh, easily. Yeah. Russ Perry. Okay. So he started to design Pickle and he would actually yeah. I listened to a podcast that he did before I became friends with him and he gave me the inspiration for Dude because they were doing unlimited design.
1: Yeah. That's what I was thinking of when you said
0: that design Pickle. I mean, yeah. Exactly. That was the inspiration. And we would almost bill ourselves as the design pickle for design and development for agencies. And so I ended up hiring him to, and did some mentorship with him. He gave me this document called the Performa. And essentially it's a very fancy spreadsheet that you can use to map out your financial plan, growth plan for the agency for three years. So I, on a whim, I drove out from San Diego to Scottsdale for a last minute coaching program that he was doing for some other students. And within 15 minutes of being there, he gave me this spreadsheet. And I was like, oh my God, game changer. And he showed me his numbers too. So like, oh really? that's when I recognized that I'm spending way too much to get these projects (laughs) done. And without hesitation, without hesitation, I emailed the team. I'm like, effective immediately. Our prices are up, are going up. And I raised the prices 25%. Still wasn't enough, but I just raised them. I was like, there's no way that we can make money. It doesn't pencil out. And I need to make money too, because at the time I was still not making very much.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting because we—I have an agency, Fullcast, which is a full-service podcast production agency. So, but early on, like coming from, I was in twenty years in corporate. So, like, you're making a six-figure salary and you're making six figures in revenue. That it's not the same thing, <laughs> first of all.
0: Right. Oh yeah, this is what most agency owners think. I thought that myself. We'd bring in a client for five hundred bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month, and then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to be able to get this done for two hundred fifty. Two fifty goes into Chris's pocket. It don't work like that.
1: No taxes and overhead and yeah, all that sort of stuff. Margin.
0: Yeah, exactly. Operating expenses, cost of goods. The other hard thing is as you bring on more clients, being diligent on the budget that you have allocated to the production labor. So a lot of agency owners will bring on all these clients and then they spend all way too much on the labor to be able to fill. And then at the end of the day, there's nothing left over for Chris. There's nothing left over for Harry. So that's a big challenge that people have. And I made those mistakes too, but been fortunate to have some great mentors like Russ who have helped me correct those challenges.
1: For folks that aren't aware of, of Dude Is or what you specialize in, you want to give an overview?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we just redid our USP, so I'm happy to announce what it is. I'll tell you how we perfected it, too, or how we like decided on this.
1: And for the one or two listeners that may not know what that means, that's a unique selling proposition.
0: Yeah, so market unique selling proposition, your tagline, your elevator pitch. So we help marketing agencies to grow their profitability by 30%, guaranteed or it's free. And for the longest time, we have positioned Dude as an outsourcing company. We know white label design and development, building out websites, landing pages. And that's still part of what we do. But over time, we started to help agencies with things like creating SOPs and improving their operations and their operational efficiency, helping train staff so that they know how to grow the agent, the business, and finally helping them to create that financial plan that we call that we, where we use the performa so that they can actually grow the business profitably. And so we have a four-step process that we use for our agencies called the dude way. And those are the four steps. Essentially, step one, we got to give them people, help them get, get these projects completed, then fix the operations, then train everybody. And then work on that performa so that we have a very clear plan as to how we're going to grow the agency and grow our profitability.
1: Any chance to use the four letters of dude as the acronym?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So D stands for dream team. U stands for unstick your processes. D stands for discover and develop. And then the E stands for earn and exit.
1: Yeah, I think that'd be too juicy an opportunity to not leverage the the four letters of dude.
0: I got to give credit to my man, Jonathan Sprinkles, who helped me create that the dude way concept. So when did podcasts come on your radar? I'm so happy that you asked me that question because I actually had a radio show in San Diego. For about a year. Okay. I was in a BNI group. I don't know what that is. It's a networking referral organization. This is back when I had my agency. And somebody in the group, I believe she was a lawyer, knew a guy who was a real estate agent who had a time slot on ESPN AM radio in San Diego. And they needed somebody because somebody had dropped out. They needed to interview somebody. So she called me up. She's like, hey, this guy that I was. I know he needs somebody on his show. You want to go on? I'm like, okay, why not? And i never been on a radio show like that before. I've done tons of podcasts before, but I've never been on a show like that. What year is this? This is 2000, and it's got to be like 2016. Okay. Maybe, no, it's got to be 2014, 2014, 2015, because I had not yet started Dude. And so I drove to the studio, and they have everything now the mic flag, they have the headphones, they have the sound guy. Like, that's when you know it's real, like when there's an actual sound guy. Yeah. And so I did the interview and then I got a call from the producer who was really just a guy who ran an escrow company. And he said, I listened to your episode. I really liked it. Would you like to have your own show? And I was like, what? I'm like, how much are you going to charge me for this? He's like, no, I'm not going to charge you anything. So what he did is between the hours of like 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Pacific time, there was just dead air. And so the station would release that timeout to to people, so he had his escrow company. He would have real estate agents be the hosts, and then he would bring in guests, and then he would wine and dine those guests, and then they would turn into prospects for his escrow business. Genius! So he thought, maybe I can open up a new revenue stream by having you run an entrepreneurship show. Oh. Okay. So I ended up talking it over with my buddy, Henry. And I said, hey, man, would you like to be my co-host just in case I can't make it or whatever? I have you there because it's every week. It's every week. I think our time slot was 10 a.m. Thursdays, 10 a.m. And we would have to find the guests and basically map out the script for the show. This is radio station. So you got to drive in. Drive in. It's live. It's not recorded. So and like literally like there's a timer and you have to make sure that you time the commercial breaks and everything like that. So he said, what the heck? Why not? Because we were going to bring on entrepreneur guests and they would potentially be clients for us because he ran a kind of like a marketing consulting business. I was obviously doing design and development. So we thought we'll find our ideal clients. We'll have them on the show and then whatever, if they go to the escrow company, who cares? So we did that for like a year. It was so much fun. We didn't make a dime off of it. <laughs> So, and, and Brent's the guy who was leasing the time. He wasn't making any money either. So at the end of the year, we're like, oh guys, this was fun. It was a great experiment. Obviously it didn't work. And we were like, I agree. You did it for a full year. Full year. Yeah, about a full year. Every week driving there. And it was more the time consumingness of it. Because for me, my whole day was basically consumed by recording the show. It took me about 45 minutes to drive there. I had to get there 30 minutes early. And then I would have to run the show and then we'd chat for 30 minutes and I'd drive back. By the time I got back, it's one or two, two o'clock in the afternoon. So it was a good time to wrap up that show. And so then fast forward to when I'm launching Dude and I was looking for affiliates. So I said, what if I use the same format, the relationship building aspect of running the radio station, but I apply that to the podcast. So I went out to every guru that was out there trying to develop a relationship with them to get them to be my affiliate. I didn't care one bit about how many listeners we would get. And so I would have them on the show and we would start talking and then I'd start to get to know them. And I met everybody, almost everybody in the digital marketing agency space and a lot of those folks I'm still friends with. And then eventually it got to a point after we recorded 50 shows, I was like, eh, like I've met everybody. There's not many other people that I can interview. I want to try and monetize this. So I met somebody out of Australia and they're basically a Facebook ad agency, but they use the podcast clips as top of funnel ads. And that's what we still do to this day. So we'll create a snippet. We'll use the snippet to a target audience and then drive them to the website. And then we were retargeting the hell out of them, but that's becoming more of a challenge. So now it's more of the, we'll retarget based on how much they're watching of the podcast on Facebook. And it's an a actual video
1: snippet, not an audiogram, but a video snippet of the interview. And how long are the snippets?
0: Less than a minute.
1: Yeah, about six seconds, okay.
0: Yeah, and they're not very long.
1: I think it's a pretty standard format, but it's the video with like the caption transcription at the bottom, yeah.
0: Exactly. It's a box. So if it's a Facebook ad or an Instagram, it's a box. And then there's, of course, a link in the video. So we want to get them to the website. But even if they come to the website now, it's getting way harder to retarget them with more content because of all the changes to iOS 14 and people having to accept cookies. And that technology really is going to go away or it's going to be transformed. But it's still a fantastic way to generate awareness.
1: Where do you see that evolving to if we're losing the ability to track with pixels and retargeting? What's the next wave of that look like if you had to pull out your crystal ball?
0: Well, there's still data sharing going on that hasn't been regulated. This is one thing that's interesting about agency people is we will always find a new way to capture, use to leverage technology to find our ideal clients. So there are technologies out there where we can track people that are coming to the website now and get their contact info. So we're testing that out for ourselves right now. And in terms of the podcast industry, I think it's going to shrink. I think that like a lot of things, it was really, really it was like a fad. So a lot of people jumped in, but the time it takes to produce the episodes and eventually just like, I'm not making any money off this thing. So I think the number of podcasts will shrink, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And so I don't know how much longer that will last kind of like as a top of funnel awareness aspect. I also think that the video versions will be... Way more important than just strictly audio. I mean, most people I know do video, people that have a legit podcast.
1: Yeah, we're seeing a lot of clients move to start with video. In the past, they would maybe do a video like a Zoom, but then we would just strip out the audio. Right. Because the quality wasn't that good. But now with tools like Squadcast, like they're getting high quality HD video now. Right. So if they want to do something with it. It's be a shame to waste it. So that's
0: Absolutely. So I think that YouTube advertising with the video snippets, I think that'll continue to grow. I don't know what the stats are now, but it was like maybe 20% of podcasts actually had a video version. So that was kind of like that blue ocean for marketing. But I think that'll also change as well. I think video will just become the standard and then after that, who the heck knows.
1: What's interesting is that YouTube just announced sort of another deeper push into podcasting. So they'll actually be allowing people to upload RSS feeds, which is interesting. Oh, awesome. Because the RSS feed is the origins of anyone with a podcast.
0: It's very interesting how RSS feeds and QR codes kind of (laughs) made a resurgence during COVID. It's like the QR code, like who the hell cared about a QR code prior to COVID? Now when you walk into a restaurant, that's the first thing that you look for is like, where's the QR code?
1: Well, it's interesting because yeah, it sort of ingrains in people like these habits that only when something like a pandemic hits and everyone was forced to use it, like older generations, boomers, like using Zoom, like let's jump on Zoom. That's a verb now, like who like? but it had to be at that level, even just this idea of remote work. I'm interested what you're seeing from an agency perspective, but I just, I grew up in just outside of New York and lived in New York city and folks aren't returning back to those offices. Those are very expensive real estate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the commercial real estate market, I think is going to just be crushed, but remote. So I wrote a book about remote work actually during the pandemic. I don't know, it's called Never Wear Pants Again. And when the pandemic hit, we actually didn't suffer at all as a company. We got stronger because we'd had to work remote prior to this. You know, There would be instances where the office would be shut down or we were doing construction. So we needed to close it for a month or something like that. So we had already developed a cadence and SOPs on communication so that we could continue to operate. What COVID did for us in a good way, it said, Okay, we're all remote anyways, instead of just trying to hire people in Tijuana, Mexico, let's see if we can find people in other parts of the country. And so then our team, we really started to expand and we really started to find amazing people in other parts of the country. And now we've got people all throughout Mexico, we've got people all throughout South America. And these are amazing folks that are always virtual. Because I'm not going to open an office in Puebla and Hermosillo and Cancun, Like, that doesn't make sense. So from a remote work standpoint, it's here to stay. If you try and force people to go back to the office, they're just going to leave. They're going to leave. Yeah, Like, especially for technology talent, like there's a massive shortage of tech talent right now. And so the winners in that will be the people who pay the most and who actually know how to lead a team and can show people that their work matters on a much bigger scale. Because totally. nobody wants to go to work for somebody just to make the owner rich, richer. And so you really do need to learn how to create a vision and a mission and then get buy-in from your people and they will move mountains for you if you can do that.
1: I saw something where there was this company that was on the lookout for any companies that were mandating that their workers return to the office and they would target the engineers of those companies and be like, hey, you don't have to go back to the office if you don't want to. And they would use that as a recruitment opportunity.
0: Yeah. Like what's the point? Yeah. Like I think that's owners. Sometimes we get a little bit full of ourselves and we don't adapt quick enough or we think that our way is the only way. Yeah. The world is changing whether you like it or not. And you hear so much rhetoric about people saying, well, nobody wants to work anymore. It's not that they don't want to work anymore. For the most part, most people want to work. I believe that human beings are happiest when they're actually doing something, when their life has meaning, when they are productive. So people inherently, instinctively want to work. The reason why a lot of people say nobody wants to work is because you suck at being a manager at being a leader. And in (laughs) our industry, specifically agencies and anything tech related, you don't have that luxury anymore because they're going to come work for a company like us where our whole attitude is we find amazing people. We give them the tools to do amazing stuff. Then we just get the hell out of their way and let them blow us away by the results.
1: What's interesting is I think preconceived notions. I mean, I was born in 1970s and I grew up in the 80s, 90s. So just like the whole idea of the nine to five, like this idea like everyone has to work eight hours a day. And it's interesting how much it gets ingrained. Cause even now, like i my on business, work from home. But it was hard for me to like not be in my in this seat at nine AM Cause it's like you have I remember I'd be in the office and you'd know who would showing up at nine fifteen and be like, hey, Chris, rough night last night. <laughs> like you just watch everyone and everyone's kind of monitoring. <laughs>
0: exactly yeah we work in those banker's hours they leave early i don't know if you guys ever said that
1: but it's funny because it's the company knows that it's this peer pressure group that's keeping everything working and all following like that herd mentality and people have different sleep cycles work cycles energy cycles like there's people that are night owls and they love to work like 10
0: to 2 a.m and we're just trying to fit everyone into that box for Yeah. What's fascinating, I just read this like last week or the week before. For the first time in history, we have five generations of people that are essentially sharing the same office space together. Five different generations. It's crazy. It's never happened before. So think about all the life circumstances or life, different life experiences that people have that have shaped their perception of how things are supposed to be. All of those are colliding at the same time. And as leaders, we have to recognize that and figure out like, how are we going to get everybody moving in the same direction? Some people are just never going to do it. Some people are just never going to be able to mesh. That's okay. We need to figure out who are the people that we actually, that get it and that can move in the same direction and at the same speed that we need them to.
1: When did you start becoming aware of the offices in Tijuana as someplace where you wanted to set up shop? Like what was happening in Mexico or is Tijuana specifically that was interesting to you?
0: So like as a kid, because <laughs> my grandfather's from Mexico yeah. and so my father, his dad, they only spoke Spanish and neither of them knew how to read or write. Okay, And so my dad, we always used to go down to Mexico for like little vacations and stuff like that. My dad had always wanted to start some sort of business in Mexico, do something in Mexico. Unfortunately, he died in 2007 and 2007 of cancer. Okay, So he wasn't able to do that. So in the back of my mind, I always knew maybe I would like to be able to do something in Mexico, kind of fulfill a dream that he had, but also recognizing that it's kind of like the underdog country. Many Latin American countries are kind of what I call the hidden gems for talent. And so I decided the Philippines team, they're great, but I cannot deal with the time zone anymore. Like I can't stay up to one o'clock in the morning and the culture and just things getting missed. And like the worst part is when you have a problem with a client and they say, I need this fixed now. And then you're like, my team's asleep. Right. Yeah. Like you can't say that anymore. Especially as an agency, they're gonna go find somebody else. So that's when I was like, let me see if I can find people down in Tijuana, which I was living in San Diego, so it's 25 minutes away. Sure. And we ended up building a small team there of about anywhere from five to seven people. And then I went and took my agency from 50 to over 220 clients with those that little team. Now, granted, we were always very good at the operations side. So that helped a lot. But it was just hidden town pool of people that I just kind of stumbled upon.
1: With a strong command of English?
0: All of them spoke English. It was a requirement. Still, everybody has to speak English. Yeah. It's a requirement that we have at our company.
1: What would you notice about the work ethic?
0: I mean, I think it's stronger than a lot of places in the United States. There's kind of like this stereotype that Mexicans are lazy or Brazilians just want to be on the beach all day, which (laughs) doesn't want to be on the beach all day. Come on.
1: Yeah, I've been to Brazil. I mean, I can see where it comes from.
0: (laughs) So they do have a different relationship culturally between work and personal life. In the United States, your value as a human being is very much defined by what you do for work and how much you earn. So for example, you go to a party, you meet somebody for the first time. What's one of the first questions you ask them? What do you do? what do you do? Ask that question in Mexico, because your value as a person isn't defined by what you do for work. So there's a massive cultural difference between Latin America, specifically Mexico and the United States. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're lazier. It's that who I am is different from what I do. And so that influences their approach to work. But On the flip side of that, if you can show them how work helps them to fill other missions that they have in life or how the company is trying to grow and also helping people in their immediate communities, then our people work harder than anybody else that I've ever met because they're so committed to the mission. So perfect example of that is like, we donate a lot of money to charity, a lot of money to charity. We don't publicize it at all, really, because that's, we don't want to be one of these like Instagram philanthropic people or companies, but I can tell you, we donated tens of thousands of dollars last year to charity. We built a whole facility at an animal shelter here in Ensenada last year. And our people are really excited about that. They love hearing about that. And I tell them all the time, the more we make, the more we can help people in our community.
1: I'm curious on the podcast, you had the experience on the radio station, but how have you grown as a host over the course of the years you've been doing the show?
0: Oh man, I love interviewing people. I love hearing more stories. I think from a hosting perspective, I really try and shift the interviews to let's find something unique that this person can say. And I also only want to have like people that I align with on in terms of values on the show now. Cause there's a lot of dickheads out there in the agency <laughs> space. Like I've met That's some it. of the weirdest, most like just not egotistical, nice like <laughs> racist, sexist. Like hate everybody. Like it's crazy.
1: It's funny when you give people enough rope. How much? How easy it is for them to hang themselves with like their. Yeah, our narcissists. (laughs) My
0: God, there's some people that absolutely love themselves. I swear, when they have sex, they are staring at themselves (laughs) in the mirror. And so like, I only want nice people on the podcast. And then the other thing, the shift that I had is I stopped interviewing as many people and I start doing three shows a month. This is agency that I hired to kind of change the focus of the show and use snippets to drive traffic. They're like, we need to hear more from Chris. So I do three shows a month with just me talking about a specific topic. And an easy way to do that is you can go through your emails that you've sent out, your content emails. And look at some of the best performers, look at those open rates, right? And that'll give you the topics of what you can dive into and more deeply on the podcast. And sometimes I'll literally just take the email and I'll be like, here's my bullet points. And I'll just kind of regurgitate what the email says in a podcast. It doesn't have yeah. to be long. I try and keep my shows around 30 minutes. Sometimes they're 20, or sometimes they're 35. So I do those shows three times a month. And then I'll do one kind of bonus show where I'm interviewing somebody else. And that seems to have been working really well in building my own credibility and expertise. Because I think that we all have levels of expertise, but kind of the nature of agency folks or creative folks is that we downplay that. We don't recognize the things that we're very good at. And so the podcast is a great way for you to be able to showcase your expertise in a very nonchalant, kind of like not braggadocious way. And people will connect with you.
1: Yeah. I think what people are coming to realize is just having two talking head gets boring really quickly. And what people are in is, is stories like human connection. Like they want to hear like, yeah, that the way we opened with your story about like Mexican wrestling, like that's something that's going to personalize you and not going to hear that probably from another agency. <laughs> so that's why, I mean, I love the long form conversations and, and I really feel like an hour is a good window to just to get to know people and just to understand like what it is that makes you tick specifically, Chris, and you're also your story. Cause I think that's really fascinating because people, want to relate to you and they're like, oh, I had like a wandering path to get to where I'm at. I had failures along the way. I've got these weird little quirk and hobbies and things that I'm interested in. I too can find my way just like
0: Chris did. Yeah. I mean, telling my story is one of those things that's always also has not always been comfortable for me, especially there are certain episodes or certain interviews that I do where I talk about my childhood because I had this really, really like challenging childhood, tons of physical abuse, emotional abuse, and like best friend got murdered because he was in a gang and like all this stuff like that most people can't necessarily relate to. And there's a time and place to be able to share that. So like certain shows, I talk about that. But in general, like cancer, for example, like I talk a lot about my dad, cancer. He was diagnosed December 2006. He died a month later, three days before my 27th birthday. You know, that's something that a lot of people can relate to. And I'm not telling that story as a marketing ploy. It was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to go through. Of course. Like I talk about how five years after my dad died, I became a mentor to a young man whose mom was diagnosed with cancer. And she had breast cancer at the time. So I was still going through the grieving process. I met him. She ended up dying about six months after he and I got paired. And so many lessons that I learned from that. But the point of the story is that there are little things that have happened to you. That might seem scary to share or might seem insignificant in a business standpoint. But here's the big lesson that everybody needs to learn from sharing stories and being vulnerable is that human beings right now are absolutely dying for connection. We live in a world where in theory, we're more connected than ever, right? We're attached to our phones. We're attached to social media. Everybody looks to social media as kind of like the gauge for how things are supposed to go in my life. But the truth is is that everybody feels more lonely than ever before. Sure. Totally agree. We feel so disconnected. And so people are looking for connection. And you see it come about in politics, for example. Like the polarization in the United States right now and essentially how political groups have become the new religion yeah. Right. You judge people's values based on whether they say they're a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah, yeah. And how deeply people dig into those roles. It's because they feel a sense of meaning, they feel a sense of purpose. Identity. But yeah. It's, it's They're dying to feel connected to something. And so by you being able to share certain stories, you can genuinely connect with people and fill that void that everybody is feeling right now. So it's really, really important that you kind of think about ways that you can use your own stories to connect with folks because they're desperately seeking stories like what you have to offer.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. And I think not putting the filter on the stories we tell or thinking like nobody needs to hear this or it's insignificant or no one is going to be able to relate to it because there's going to be that one person that's going to hear that message at the specific time like they need to hear it and it's going to resonate with them so strongly. They're going to be like, wow, I didn't realize people were talking about this or I just needed to hear this in this exact moment. And I think as human beings, it's the more we can share our personal stories, I think, without overthinking it, without worrying about the what's the end result going to be or what the benefit of it going to be just knowing that the more of these that they get out they're going to do good maybe not now maybe in two years when someone listens to this episode in the future <laughs> like because of the nature of evergreen content we can't even predict i've gotten value from episodes that i've heard that were recorded like years ago and just not filtering ourselves i think is, is really important
0: i had somebody email me like last week from a mixergy in an episode that i did like years ago i will say one thing right so I really connect with people who kind of have that underdog story. Like if they grew up with a ton of money and they had everything handed to them and they didn't really have to struggle. Not my people, right? There was a guy that I interviewed. He's a young guy. He's in his early 30s and he's got a pretty big audience. And he was telling me his rags to riches story and his family had money. And he's like, like after college I couldn't get a job and I had to move into my parents' house. It was like the worst thing ever. I'm like, really man? Is that the worst thing ever? Is that the hardest thing that you've ever had to go through is moving back in with your parents in your 20s? A fucking (laughs) clue. So those are the people that I do not like, I hear people tell their stories like, there's this one guy, I won't name names, but he talks about how he was a screw up when he was a teenager graduated, barely graduated high school, was drinking every week. And in my mind, I'm like, who is paying for all this? Like, daddy must have been paying for all of your binge drinking in your early, late teens and early 20s. Be open about that. Be like, I'm so fortunate that I had family to take care of me because because that is a question that people are asking about your so-called software and maybe you don't have that challenging background be upfront about that talk about how like i've been giving so many opportunities and if it wasn't for x y and z i'd probably be dead instead of just saying i should have been dead and then just moving on with a story like go into how you actually survived I was very fortunate, I had a lot of things, a lot of challenges yeah. growing up, but my parents were not broke. They weren't poor, right? I had other things that I was dealing with, but like I had a few more opportunities than certain people. And that's why I'm not dead. And it was luck. Like I was born into a family where finances, for example, were not something that we really had to worry about. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor. So just be you know, like, talk about it. Don't be afraid to share that side of the story.
1: Tell the whole story.
0: Tell the whole story. Absolutely.
1: Not just the pieces that would make the beautiful Instagram post. (laughs) Just a couple last questions as we wrap up. I really enjoy this conversation. What's something you've changed your mind about
0: recently? Oh, man. Well, like one of my favorite sayings is that if you don't look back a year or if you don't look back on yourself from a year prior and you don't think, realize how stupid you were <laughs> when you did something wrong. So with that being said, I think one of the things that I've learned is the importance of focusing on only bringing on the right types of clients yeah. and defining who those people are. And it's going to shift over time. So maybe that goalpost changes every once in a while. So for us, for example, we started taking on anybody who called themselves an agency when I started Dude. Well, we learned pretty quickly that actually not that quickly within a couple of years that the term agency is very broad. And most people who say they have an agency don't actually have an agency. (laughs) And then we started getting more strict on who we work with. And now kind of like our minimum threshold is a half a million dollars in revenue, which really isn't that much, but it's important. So we've just identified that the people that we guarantee that we can help, they have to fit a certain criteria. And so like one of our big missions for this year is to find those people that have the minimum requirements, and then we guarantee the results. And we want to really grow our average revenue per unit, as opposed to having a lot more clients, we want to have amazing clients that we can get amazing results for. And if we can't do that, then we're going to turn them away. So that's probably one of the things that if I looked back at Chris in April of 2021, it's that Chris didn't recognize the minimum requirements to be able to work with us and then only hiring or only working with those agencies that we guarantee that we can help.
1: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. What's the most misunderstood thing about you?
0: Oh, man, I'm a very aggressive person by nature. But and admittedly, like, I don't relate to people like I have a really hard time relating to people. And I feel like I'm misunderstood by that. But I really do want people to succeed. And even though I'm screaming at people in traffic every single day. (laughs) Like I do have a soft spot and I love donating to charity and helping people out that way. And like people always are surprised that I like musicals because I'm kind of like a bigger dude. I'm about six foot 215. I love training jujitsu. I'm very physical. Okay. I was always kind of like the enforcer because I grew up playing soccer. So like I would go in thousand percent on every single tackle. I've broken many legs, broken many feet, like I have put people down and out. And that's just how I have been on the field. But I feel like I have this soft side to me as well.
1: <laughs> What's your favorite musical?
0: Maybe that's just completely in my mind. I don't know. But Okay. Oh, man. Rock of Ages is probably my favorite one. I saw it Three weeks after it opened in 2009. One of the most fun nights I've ever had in my life. If you don't know Rock of Ages, it's basically an 80s. And all the music is 80s, 80s hairband music. And it's the story of this guy and this girl who are trying to make it in LA in the 80s, trying to become singers. Tom Cruise made a movie of it. It was not even remotely close to as good as being as good as the movie. <laughs> it never is. Oh, nice. And they were going to redo, they were going to open up the musical again in LA on some theater on Sunset Boulevard. And it was essentially going to be each table was inside the musical. So you would have all the whole performance going around you. Cool. And they were going to open this up and then COVID hit. I was so disappointed because I I would have paid $1,000 to go to that experience. It was so cool. But yeah, that's my favorite musical for sure. Jersey
1: Boys is up there. Just some of the older ones Lanking, Wicked, Rent.
0: Wicked was really good. I actually saw that one in San Francisco when I was up there for work one time. We were just in New York and we saw, actually, we saw. Phantom of the Opera, because we've never seen that one. That was a legendary one. That one kind of is one of those musicals that completely changed the game. What else? We saw Chicago back in October there. I can't remember them. My memory's gone to hell. (laughs) I love musicals. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, hour flew by super well-rounded conversation. I appreciate a uh, shout out to Esther for connecting us We've Been having some really good conversations through her connections. And I'm glad we got to learn a little bit more about what you're doing with dude and, and just how your story is unique because all the different parts of what got you to where you are now. I don't think anyone else can say that those things have happened
0: to their life and naturally. Yeah, I definitely don't know too many people in this industry whose best friends were doing drive-bys at 14 years old. Yeah, I'm so happy to share. So thank you for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing your story. I'm glad we got to learn about you and the podcast. And obviously, there's going to be opportunities for folks to listen to the show. So where's the best place to send folks to learn more about you and the agency?
0: Well, I got to plug the podcast so you can go to our podcast. It's on our website, dudeagency.io. And I believe if you go on the Who We Are page towards the bottom, we release a show every Thursday. And so check it out. I really try and focus on talking about the non-sexy things of running an agency that will really help you make a big difference in your growth and profitability. So if that's something that if you're kind of tired of all the fluff and the sales jargon, you can go check out the podcast at dudeagency.io.
1: Thanks again for your time, Chris. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed our, our time together.
0: Thank you. All right, brother.
1: Thanks again to Chris for coming on the show. Always appreciate it when my guests take time out of their very special days, especially a lot of these business owners uh, doing that for me. I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you again, Chris. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com. Show notes, summary, timestamps, key takeaways, resources mentioned, it's all in there. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Cedarsoil.com for his full list of music. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focus Right, and their awesome new line, the Vocaster. See the full lineup at podcastjunkies.com forward slash vocaster. It's going to be amazing, workflow changing, sound improving, quality is going to be off the charts, and the software included is going to be exactly what you need to get your podcast off the ground. So really excited. And so glad that I've been partnering with Dan and the team at dot com forward slash vocaster. Our production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co and see how a podcast could be beneficial for your brand or company. Tune in next week for my conversation with Sam Sethi, co-host of Podland. And as you'll soon find out on the show itself, a renaissance man with so much more on his plate and we got to connect at podcast evolutions in los angeles which i'm eternally grateful for and managed to spend the next uh, two or three days together hanging out with some of our podcasting peeps. so grateful that i was able to deepen my relationship with him and we'll be having a follow-up conversation as well soon so make sure you check that out If you've made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with WrestleChris, W-R-E-S-T-L-E-C-H-R-I-S, and tag us at podcast underscore junkies. Thanks for all you do to support the show. I'll talk to you next week.